Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here with a returning guest, Mark Lutter, founder and executive director of the Charter City Institute. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me back. So Mark, we spoke perhaps around 18 months ago, uh, but for people who haven't uh, listened to that podcast episode, why don't you give a brief overview of uh, the Charter Cities Institute and what your mission is uh, with it? Sure. So I founded the Charter Cities Institute about two, two and a half years ago, and our goal is to help create charter cities, charter cities being new cities with a special jurisdiction that allows them to adopt a more competitive business environment. And so we have seen over the last um, few generations, cities like Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, and Shenzhen emerge from practically nothing to become global metropolises. And we believe that model is replicable throughout the global south, particularly in places like Africa and Asia that are urbanizing extremely rapidly today. So every year there's almost 80 million new urban residents um, eight zero million, right? There's uh, po- uh, cities, for example, Lagos are projected to reach populations um, upwards of 80 million by the end of the century. Uh, urbanization is happening extremely rapidly, and it's happening in places that do not have good governance structures and good institutions in place. Um, so people are moving to cities, but unfortunately, they are not able to get better jobs, to become more productive, to leave their kids with a better life uh, of these um, largely institutional challenges. And so what the Charter Cities Institute does is promotes um, the idea that it is possible for there to be a better future by creating good governance systems that allow for um, uh, more investment, more trade, uh, more sort of uh, reduce the barriers to entrepreneurship that can allow for this innovation, that can allow for this um, wealth creation generation, that can allow people to um, become more productive, uh, make more money, make better lives for themselves, lift people out of poverty, uh, and, and and sort of do better. And, and basically our strategy is that we, we function in two ways. We work one a little bit as a think tank. So we promote this idea. We have a podcast, the Charter Cities podcast. We host events. We have papers. Um, et cetera, to try to get this idea out there. And then second, in addition to that, we work as a um, technical assistance, basically providing consulting services to projects on the ground. So currently we're working with one in Central America, with two in Nigeria, and with one in Zambia. And we have a few other projects in the pipeline to actually help because people don't realize, but there's, uh, depending on how you want to count, uh, journalist Wade Shepard estimates that there are over 200 new city projects being built around the world. And so we like to partner with these groups to figure out what does it actually mean to build a better legal system? How do you create an administrative structure from scratch? Um, What does it look like to create this more um, enabling business environment? Uh, and, and so we've we've recently formed some some partnerships and some relationships, and we're we're really excited to uh, start getting our hands dirty in actually creating the, the legal systems to to make charter cities successful. Yeah, what kind of legal background or legal expertise, or w- what is the challenge around creating some of these legal systems? Sure. So my background, I'm an economist. I did my PhD at George Mason University um, with an emphasis on institutional economics. So trying to understand why are some countries uh, rich? Why are other countries poor? 
And if we focus, for example, on sub-Saharan Africa, um, it takes, uh, on average, 36% of per capita income just to legally register a business. And no surprise, uh, a lot of people then work in, in the informal sector, where they might be good at their job, they might be very good at selling fruit, and they might be able to hire one or two other people to help sell fruit with them. But if they try to scale, if they try to really create this very successful business, hire 10, 20, 30 people, it effectively becomes impossible because um, it's not a legal business. And you multiply this basically by by a thousand, you have a small sector of the economy that is legible, that is part of the formal economy, where people pay taxes, where people are able to engage in international trade to, to access the benefits of the sort of global uh, system. But the vast majority of people are unfortunately unable to uh, benefit from that global system or unable to really participate because the legal system just makes it prohibitively costly. Uh, it makes it very difficult to start a business. It makes it very difficult to invest, to trade, to hire somebody. And our belief is that if you set up an enabling environment, if you make it easier to do these things, then you can generate a lot of wealth and combine this with the importance of infrastructure. So a lot of uh, cities and emerging markets don't have good infrastructure in terms of roads, in terms of electricity, in terms of sewers. And so if you're able to provide effective infrastructure, then you can make this very attractive for companies to do business, to invest, to trade with good governance that allows for the creation of all these secondary industries to, to generate growth. And you can basically get this virtuous cycle where the city can um, grow. If it's growing at 7% every year, it doubles every 10 years, which means in 30 years, uh, income will be eight times the uh, starting point. So it can have pretty big impacts in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, not like textile shortness, but still relatively short. You had Peter Zahan most recently on, on, on your podcast. And when you asked the question that you asked in your, in your studies of why are some countries rich and why are some poor, I think the things he focuses most on are geography, uh, demographics, and energy. Is that a, a, do you agree with him or have any differences of opinion there? Or how do you think about that? Sure. So, um, yeah, he comes from a slightly different perspective than I do. Uh, uh, right. To me, I think there are several layers to this question. You can, like, one, look at historically, why are some areas rich and other areas poor? And so why did the Industrial Revolution happen in England and not in France? And why did it happen in Europe and not in China? If you look at that question, and then also why did it happen in Europe and not in Africa or in the Americas. And so to answer that question, I think the geography question does play a large role. And there, I would be somewhat sympathetic to, um, um, what's his face, Jared Diamond's uh, thesis, where basically there were a lot more domesticable animals, there were a lot more domesticable plants, basically you need grains, um, and the, the east-west trade allowed for the spread of these uh, uh, goods and services, um, as well as ideas. Uh, well, in Africa, it's north-south trade, so you would have to go through different climates, which would often kill the animals or kill the plants, which would basically prevent the spread, combined with the fact that Africa has some diseases that are not particularly conducive to development, um, like malaria, uh, that I think um, hindered some of the development. Then after like that is the first stage as to basically why it happened in the, the, the Northern hemisphere as opposed to the Southern hemisphere. The second question is why Europe and more specifically why UK as opposed to China. And there, right, like drawing from Montesquieu, a lot of other people have thought about this, but his thesis is basically in, in, in China, you have geography that makes it very easy for there to be a dominant um, state. 
And so the Chinese state has basically existed in one form or another for the last 3,000 or so years. Every 100 years, it breaks up, they start fighting, and then it reconstituted, it's, it reconstituted itself. Um, Europe, because of its mountains, because of its uh, rivers, has effectively never been conquered by a single group. There have been groups that have tried, Napoleon and Hitler being two of the ones that almost succeeded, but nobody has been able to, to conquer all of it. And basically what that meant was there was a lot more competition. One of my favorite books over the last several years has been The Three-Body Problem, where the Trisolarians, the aliens, in order to prevent humanity from progressing and from challenging their dominance, uh, deployed what is described in the book as a Sophon lock, which basically prevented the emergence of technology. And if you think about this in the context of states and governments, um, a lot of times governments would be quite happy to implement a Sophon lock on new technology because new technology is necessarily disruptive. And so if you have no external challengers, then you might say, look, we don't want the printing press, for example, because the printing press will allow new ideas that might challenge our dominant narrative and that might lead to disruption. However, in Europe, because there was no dominant uh, entity, because there were a lot of smaller competing states, they had to adopt technology because they had to, the external threat was much stronger than the internal threat. And because of that, you got this basically building up of state capacity. You got a much uh, a region that was much more likely to embrace trade, to embrace commerce, to embrace new ideas that I think really planted the seeds for uh, the Industrial Revolution, while in China, which is the other place that it potentially could have happened, right? If you look at um, Ming Dynasty China in kind of the 13th and 14th centuries, there were periods of about 150 or so years of progress where there were a lot of inventions, there were, were a lot of ideas, but it never really reached that critical mass to become self-sustaining. Right. And so that is why you see it happening in Europe as to why in England, instead of right Europe proper, I mean, there's sort of a few reasons. One, it's an island, which gives it uh, gave it basically a much longer degree of political stability than most of the places on the mainland Two, they had a lot of natural deposits of coal, which means that when they reached the age of fossil fuels, they were able to relatively quickly tap into these fossil fuels to industrialize. It was a mercantile society, partially because it was an island, which led to this general openness of trade, of investment. And, and that basically led to this, uh, I think, general success. And now if we think about how then the Industrial Revolution has right, like expanded and quote unquote spread to other societies, I think there are also several factors we can look at in there. And geography does play a role there. But the other thing that plays a role I would describe as probably um, sort of cultural distance. So we can explain the U.S. and Canada relatively easily, um, basically through a combination of disease and genocide, the native populations were wiped out. So the English settlers took over and they already knew how to right, industrialize and do all of those things. I mean, they didn't know how when they started because it was prior to industrialization, but the cultures were linked enough, it was pretty easy to transfer the knowledge. Um, if you look at France, right, it's pretty close to England. So they saw what was going on. They could hire English people to come to France. They could copy it relatively quickly. Um, and then some societies like the Japanese, uh, when Matthew Perry came in 53, they basically realized, okay, this policy of isolation is not tenable. So they quickly realized that to be successful, they needed to industrialize. And because of the sort of specific organizational structure of their society, they were able to industrialize relatively quickly. China, they kind of hit that point basically in like around the 1980s with Deng Xiaoping. I mean, they had some degree of industrialization before, but because of the communist policies, it had really prevented it from taking off. Um, and now when you look at, I think, places uh, in, in sort of the global South today, Africa and Asia, some of them are, are beginning to catch up. For example, Southeast Asia, um, 
uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos are all having like 5% plus annual growth rates. Some countries in Africa are seeing that industrialization happening, namely Ethiopia and Rwanda. Ghana is also quite a high performer, but then some countries are still lagging behind. And to me, I would point to the ones that are lagging behind largely as this um, lack of organizational structure and state capacity. And there are several reasons for that. One is a lot of these countries don't have a history of statehood. So it's easier to understand what a state is, how it interacts with people, like what it should do, what its role should be if you have had a state going a long way back in your history versus if you were a nomadic people, you don't have that. So you tend to have these social structures dominated by clans, which might make it a little bit harder to socially organize into a state and then to adopt uh, modern industrial technology and the the things that go along with it. And then other countries um, basically have this nasty legacy of colonialism, where while they did have functioning social structures for their purposes, colonialism came and kind of blew all those up, amalgamated them into weird different divisions and created all of these nasty legacies that have made it uh, more difficult for them to adopt new technologies. And obviously, colonialism was partially impacted by geography. Some regions were easier to colonize than others. Some regions right, had specific colonization strategies, depending on who the colonizer was, which led to either sort of worse long-term outcomes. Belgium, Belgium was one of the worst colonizers, uh, with King Leopold making uh, the Congo his basic private colony and being really horrific. I mean, all colonizations were horrific to, to varying degrees, but uh, Belgium was particularly horrific compared to most, and that has contributed to, I think, Belgium's or the Congo's lagging development today. So I, I think that's how I would think about like why some countries are rich and some countries are poor. Um, geography definitely does feature into it, but to me, I consider, I guess, to a certain extent, a weak part of Peter Zihan's thesis is it doesn't doesn't it, I guess ignores the, the the people element, the cultural element, and so if we think about the the um, I guess the last Thor movie when the um, um, Asgardians are are on the ship leaving, watching Asgard get destroyed. Somebody's like, Asgard is being destroyed. And I forget who says it, but he's like, no, it's okay. Like, we are the people of Asgard. We are Asgard, not the actual place itself. Uh, so I think there is an element where, right, obviously people perform differently in different geographic terrains, but uh, different people with different cultural histories and different um, um, understandings might lead to different social outcomes depending on what the context is. Yeah. So, so you mentioned what, what Zahan is missing. What would you mention what, what Diamond is missing or where you disagree with him? Yeah. So I think Diamond has a very good, I guess, explanation probably up to, I don't know, maybe 2000 years ago or so. Um, because Diamond's explanation tends to be very geographic and very oriented on right trade, particularly in uh, like the, I guess not really even trade, just like the transfer of livestock and, and um, livestock technology and uh, a plant technology that can be um, harvested. But as of 2,000 years ago, my understanding is basically all of the transfer from east to west and west to east of both plant and livestock technology had effectively been been transferred. And then the question is, okay, why did uh, some areas end up being more successful than others, right? China has basically dominated most of human history. It wasn't until like 300 years ago that it really became uh, clear that Europe might take the lead, both in terms of technology, in terms of GDP per capita, things like that. Um, if we go back a thousand years, Europe was sort of a backwater and doing quite poorly, while the the, the Islamic world um, was uh, extremely successful. And so to me, 
Diamond's thesis can explain why the Eurasian continent was quite successful, but it can't really explain um, Europe had the Industrial Revolution, why different um, cultures flourished at different periods of time, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? One theory can't explain everything. It's just that it is limited in that respect, that it doesn't really try to tackle those questions. And you mentioned uh, Japan realized that isolationism was an untenable strategy. What were the dynamics? Like, why was it unsustainable? I'm I'm not an expert on Japanese history, but basically what happened is in 1853, they had been closed off. Uh, It's um, before uh, almost a half, I think about 60 years. Um, There was an American that sailed there in like, I don't know, 1790 something and to trade. And they basically said, all right, no, you can't come. And no Americans went there. There was a small uh, group of, I believe they were Dutch, um, who were allowed to live there. I think they might have been missionaries, but I'm not sure, who were basically tolerated as the only foreigners. Nobody else was uh, effectively allowed in and out. It was an entirely self-contained society. And then because the rest of the world, particularly the U.S., um, was industrializing, was getting a lot of new technology, um, in 1853, Matthew Perry sails a gunboat in, and he has a gunboat. And so suddenly, the Japanese, what they want is not as important because with this superior technology, the Americans decide to impose the decisions on the Japanese. The Japanese realize, okay, well, they're imposing these decisions now, but what are the series of actions that we can take to make sure that in the future, right? people are not imposing decisions on us. Instead, if we are able to fend for ourselves, then they took it a little bit too far and decided to impose decisions on other people, um, sort of colonizing a lot of um, um, East Asia, Manchuria, and, uh, in the, I guess, depending on how you define it, either in the run-up to the Second World War or part of the Second World War itself. Totally. And so zooming out uh, a bit, if we're asking the same question, you know, a thousand years from now, or 500 years from now, or what's the criteria that led certain you know, uh, parts of the world to be more successful than others? How is that question different from what is, you know, from the previous 500 years or a thousand years? Yeah, I think from the previous 500 years, the question will actually probably be somewhat similar. Um, and what I would look for particularly uh, is, I don't know, like a sort of cultural uh, thriving or civilizational thriving. And so if we look at the U.S., for example, I'm not sure that we're thriving. I mean, COVID cases are rising quite rapidly compared to most peer countries. Uh, We have seen in the recent um, months sort of the failure of the regulatory state, the failure of, I don't know what to call it, the law and order state with a lot of the police brutality that has recently gotten a lot of attention. And while there has been police brutality over the last, like, I don't know, for, for a long time, it's become clear, especially how the police have reacted to the protests, that the, there, there is a great need for some um, police uh, reform. We have seen some of our major institutions, uh, for example, journalism, are going through relatively severe crises in terms of trying to figure out what they is able to be pun- published. Um, with the New York Times getting a little bit frustrated with a lot of the staffers getting frustrated and angry with the, the Tom uh, Cotton um, op-ed. And so we're going through this, I don't know, convalescent period combined with the, the sort of peer TO critique that there hasn't been progress, uh, material progress being made in the last 20 some years. 
uh, it's interesting if you look, read um, a lot of British right after the Second World War, right? Basically, when the British Empire effectively collapsed in the immediate post-war era, where they basically realized sustaining was untenable. You had a wave of independence movements from colonies that basically went from like 45, I don't know, 65, 70, where the empire entirely fell apart. And what you have is a lot of um, the British thinkers are then examining like civilizational life cycles. So looking at like Rome, how Rome rose and fell, how Islamic civilizations rose and fell, how Chinese, how Indian, um, most of them didn't look at African civilizations because there wasn't a lot of research and data available on African civilizations at the time. But presumably they follow similar patterns in the sense that there is a period where um, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but there is a people who develop a somewhat like core set of ideas that tends to be in a shared mindset and a shared understanding that tends to be relatively well adapted for that particular time and that particular place. And then with that, historically, that spread has often been through effectively conquest and violence. Um, If we're thinking about the next thousand years, my guess is that the amount of spreading of ideas and knowledge is going to be much less about conquest and violence than it was in the past, just because conquest and violence is a lot less profitable than it was in the past. A lot more knowledge is embodied in relationships and in ideas than um, is embodied in physical objects. Uh, Reading history, it's like I never really understood what like sacking a city meant because like what would it mean to go sack San Francisco, right? You can go and steal all the stuff, but the value of San Francisco isn't in the stuff you can cart away. It's in all of these relationships. It's in all of these ideas. But for most of history, the value of things was in things that you could actually cart away. And so people, a lot of the violence was just related to physical resource extraction. But so I I, I think over the next thousand years, um, the organizations and the sort of cultures that are successful are going to be a lot less related to physical resource extraction um, and violence than they were over the previous thousand years. But I think the same underlying dynamics are going to play out in terms of there's going to be a mindset, an understanding, uh, an idea that emerges in a particular time in a particular place. Maybe with the internet, it will be less place dependent, but this idea will then kind of spread and influence people till it might be called a like dominant regional culture or something that will then right, create a spark of ideas. Uh, right, we saw this with ancient At- with ancient Greece, where particularly Athens, we saw um, in sort of Renaissance Italy, we same that saw that same kind of uh, uh, spark. You saw that in. Reformation Holland, Vienna, uh, right prior to the, the, the First World War. And I don't know, that idea set that culture then will spread, will thrive, will get a lot of adherence. Um, people will, will join because it's cool. Um, the people who are sitting at the forerun, forefront of it will gain access to like resources in terms of like status as well as actual physical resources. Um, and, and I think we'll see the same kind of pattern play out where some of the older cultures and, 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 and civilizations will just run into this sort of natural life cycle and challenge where they're after a while they get stale, they get stagnant, people aren't sure what to do. And they'll, they'll go through a kind of, I don't know, rethinking period. Some of them might collapse and fall apart. A thousand years is a pretty long time. Others will figure out some new kind of spark to get a second wave going. Um, and then obviously, right, like you have to throw the technological element into that. How will technology evolve and how will this change the dynamics? Um, and so you can think about 
I don't know, there's probably three major technologies that you can think about, at least in the next hundred years or so, that will have a substantial uh, impact on the evolution of, of humanity, maybe four technologies. So it would be AI, right? If AI happens, that would obviously have huge implications. Um, longevity, if human lifespans, particularly working lifespans, are substantially elongated, that will have a substantial uh, impact on um, general dynamics. Three is just uh, travel in terms of spatial mobility. Um, if there are supersonic jets, if a hyperloop becomes common, that's going to have a big impact on um, um, human interaction. And the four might be interstellar travel, uh, which would also obviously have a big impact on, on sort of social organization and human interaction. There are probably some others that would have a big impact that I can't think of off the top of my head. Cryptocurrency, blockchain. Cryptocurrency, yeah. VR. Interesting. So zooming out a bit, I, I want to talk about the different schools of thought in the, in the Charter City movement. And maybe leading up to that, you could just give sort of a, a brief history, if we're going to look back at the last you know, decade or two, what have been the different waves in terms of understanding the history of the, of the Charter City movement and its, and its inspirations and roots? Sure. So, right, uh, I, I like to think there are kind of two strands of the Charter City space. So one was started by Paul Romer, I believe, nine, 11 years ago now, in 2009. He gave a TED Talk. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics about two years ago. Um, very well-known economist. He gave a TED Talk where he proposed charter cities. His model had a high-income country, for example, Canada, acting as the guarantor in a low-income country, um, for example, Honduras. The idea that right institutions determine long-term um, economic outcomes, and it can be hard to reform institutions at the national level, um, but a way to get... Right, Canada already has good institutions, so if you get them to come in and administer a new city in Honduras, that can lead to a lot of these good economic outcomes. He got a lot of attention, right? gave a TED Talk, economist articles about him, etc. He goes to Madagascar and Honduras. Neither of those projects work out, and he has kept a low public profile regarding charter cities ever since. Um, the alternative strain is kind of the libertarian strain, the techno-libertarian strain. That goes back a little bit later. There were several projects in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Operation Atlantis and the Republic of Minerva that basically tried to create um, new islands to start new societies. I think they were a little bit naive in terms of thinking like what it actually takes to build a new society. That kind of got sort of revived and, and picked up a little bit with the Seasteading Institute and Patrick Friedman trying to make it a little bit more realistic. It's somewhat caricatured now saying like, yeah, there is law internationally and Patry and the founders of the Sea Studying Institute know that, but it's, it's still a, a space that allows, it's much more of a frontier than on land in existing countries. Um, and so um, the Sea Studying Institute was founded in 2008, and they have uh, uh, gotten a lot of publicity. And now since then, those two strains have, I think, begun to merge a little bit. So for example, myself, I got initially interested through this kind of libertarian strain, but with my um, education at George Mason, I have taken a slightly more right, Romarian approach in terms of looking at functioning institutions, looking at best practices, I, being relatively informed by the, the institution, the literature, the academic institutional literature, and not being as kind of um, radical as I think some of the early techno-libertarians were, but being sort of very pragmatic and being able to interface with organizations like the World Bank, like the African Development Bank, like host countries, because you need to approach them are kind of speaking their language and with a um, like friendly, helpful approach, not an antagonistic approach uh, to make it work. Um, and then I think the third kind of quote unquote strain of 
charter city space is just like the, I don't know, practical space. And this meaning not like, it's not really like a, a, like if you define like a social movement as a group of people who know each other, obviously the group changes over time, but there is kind of a like lineage of thought that can be traced from the start to the end via um, like talks, conferences, writing, etc. Um, the practical strain has none of that. It's sort of an amalgamation of um, things that have been going on in the world. So, for example, like Shenzhen was started in 1980, which is basically a charter city. Um, Hong Kong, obviously, is sort of kind of has charter city elements. So does Singapore. So does the Dubai International Financial Center. And so these were basically people in the real world faced with problems who tried to solve those problems who happened to somewhat independently, somewhat with some relation, uh, Deng Xiaoping went to Singapore and was like, oh, all these Chinese people are like doing well. Like what happened? All the Chinese people in my country are very poor. And the Kuan Yu basically said, yeah, all of these people like are descendants from rural farmers in China. They were very poor and now they're not as poor. Why? Because like Singapore has a good legal system, which helped um, inspire some of the, the, the economic reforms in mainland China. So there was some knowledge transfer, but it's not as like self-contained as within the kind of techno-libertarian space where there's a relatively clear intellectual tradition, as well as the more mainstream space with Paul Romer, where there's also a relatively clear um, intellectual transmission. And so now like, the, the sort of clear lineages have kind of gone away. It's mostly just a big incestuous pot at this point with different people um, with different strategies, but most of the folks are, are talking to each other um, and, and trying to figure out what's working and what's not working and, and what the next steps are to, to make everything work a little bit better. And uh, when you just talked about how uh, Deng Xiaoping took some lessons from Lee Kuan Yew about the legal system, was it as simple as, you know, respect for private property, I, you know, capitalism versus communism, or, or was there something more nuanced there? And then I'm curious more broadly as to the, the different lessons that we've taken from, you know, Dubai, Hong Kong, you know, Shenzhen, um, and some of these early success cases. Sure. So the, I believe the book in which this conversation is referenced is called um, The Shenzhen Experiment, and it's only referenced on like two or three lines. So it's, uh, there might be a source that has a little bit more of the conversation, but at least the source which I read, it does not go in depth. My guess is it's not just like a sort of communism versus capitalism dichotomy. Um, my guess is it's, it, um, because Lee Kuan Yew is actually interesting because he was a socialist. I mean, he, he, I think was part of the Fabian society when he went to college in, in England, um, uh, which who are kind of like the moderate socialists. Um, but my guess is it was more of a, just like making Deng Xiaoping realize that it is possible for there to be wealth creation that like Chinese people are not condemned to live in relative poverty and that degree of possibility rather than any like here are the specific arguments is what helped change his mind to help experiment with um, these different changes because if you look at the reforms they actually implemented in um in shenzhen it's not like they came in and said like here are private property reforms what they did is they basically came in and said this is a special economic zone you can do whatever you want um, so they said, I forget the specifics, but it's like postal services and railroads were going to still be controlled by the central government. And other than that, just like figure it out on your own. And so they had some advice from economists from the World Bank, but it was largely a trial and error in process at that point. It wasn't like there was some overarching guiding ideology saying like, we need to move towards more market-based systems. I mean, they kind of knew 
Um, but they obviously had to be careful because it's a communist country, so you have to keep the narrative alive. Um, but it was mostly uh, the, the analogy that he used frequently is when you're crossing a stream, you have to feel the, the stones with your foot. So it's kind of like stepping around, seeing what works. And once it's planted on firm enough ground, you can take a step and then put your next foot out and see what's firm and, and, and keep going from there. And so to answer your second question as to what the differences and similarities are between trends in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Dubai, I mean, the similarities are basically in two to three generations, they demonstrate it's possible to turn from effectively nothing into a world-class city. Um, there are a huge amount of differences as well. Um, Dubai is, or Singapore is an independent state. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew um, basically let it. It's mildly authoritarian. They had relatively, it's typically rated as a very free market state. That's not really true. It has a very open business environment, but it's not, they, they also have a lot of government intervention in the economy. If you look out of the top like 20 companies, I think seven of them are, I think it might even be majority owned by their sovereign wealth fund. Um, uh, they had a very active industrial policy. Uh, so they basically benefited from being a, a entropot. It was a very good location. It was originally a British trading, um, um, it was set up as a British trading point in 1819. Uh, and that good location combined with, right, like if you were in that general region over the last 40 years, you did well because China, right, was growing extremely rapidly. So, so long as you could, right, like interface with the most rapidly growing economic region in the world, you could do okay. Um, and they did that quite well. Hong Kong, uh, they, right? Like they, they had a much less active state policy. It was a British colony, but the, the, the governors of it were very hands-off. John Cowperthwaite, who was the governor um, in the, I believe, 60s, um, who kind of is generally credited with defining modern uh, Hong Kong. His policy was positive non-interventionism, which is basically like let the market function and just provide public goods, roads, schools, etc. That was a very explicitly like laissez-faire ideology. They all came from the UK. They were all educated sort of with this classically liberal outlook. And that ended up being quite successful for them. They also incorporated a lot of um, refugees from mainland China, particularly in the late 40s and early 50s. A lot of textile manufacturers from uh, Shanghai who helped set up the initial textile industry. And then starting in 1980, they basically started to change into a financial center, largely financing the industrialization and urbanization in Guangdong and mainland China, Guangdong being the province where Shenzhen is located. Shenzhen is interesting. It's, it's a special economic zone, but it's actually much closer to a charter city, um, at least according to our definition, in terms of the amount of size, in terms of the degree of autonomy, in terms of the fact that it was... Um, multi-use, um, that the, the power was devolved to the city government instead of a predefined set of different rules and regulations that you had to follow. And they basically kind of um, felt it out. They pioneered the, the, the story of them changing the labor law is that there was a joint venture um, between somebody on the mainland and, and a group in Hong Kong to create a hotel. And uh, they were like, okay, how do we get the people, the workers to show up to the hotel? Well, you have to pay them. The workers were somewhat resistant, actually, because they were like, this is, this is evil capitalism. This is dirty. The female workers didn't want to wear makeup because they were like, this is dirty and gross. We can't wear makeup. They didn't want to wash the sheets more than, I think, once a week because it was a waste to wash the sheets more than once a week. So you had all of these uh, cultural differences, and they eventually reached an agreement 
or it was, I mean, it's not what we would think of as a like free market in labor, but it was much more of a market than what previously existed in China. That was a compromise that was acceptable to both sides. And that started just with this, I think it was called the bamboo hotel, um, was then adopted by the rest of Shenzhen and was then basically adopted as the, the labor market reforms for the rest of China. And that happened on a handful of occasions, as well as with state owned enterprises, I think as well as with um, sort of land use regulations. Um, but it, right, like it was kind of this, here's a thing that's happening. Let's figure it out. This is what our goals are. Uh, then Dubai was kind of a little bit more like Singapore in the sense that it had visionary leadership at a very good strategic location. Um, they basically benefited from the missteps of, uh, some of their surrounding partners occasionally. So actually, if you look at the late 1890s, um, Iran would close the, like, raise tariffs on some of their um, ports. And then Dubai would say, hey, Iranian traders, like, come here. And in, in the history books, it's like, in that year, they got like 12 traders. And so at that point, in, like the 1890s, it's significant enough to just attract like 12 more people to live there, because like, literally nobody lived there. It's a, just a desert. It's, it's really difficult to live. Um, but that kind of taking advantage of geopolitical missteps was advantageous for them. They got oil in 1968, um, but they basically, unlike Abu Dhabi, which effectively lives off oil, their oil as the percentage of their budget is less than 5%. They plowed all of that money into infrastructure. Um, For example, when there was the Iranian revolution, typically Tehran was the layover going flying east to west or west to east. But after the Iranian revolution, um, Dubai said, hey, we can be the layover. Uh, They created a financial center, um, right? Lebanon had a um, civil war. So Damascus was typically the financial center in the Middle East. And after this, like during the civil war, okay, it's not the financial center anymore. Dubai created a... um, the Dubai International Financial Center to attract a lot of the finance in the Middle East. Uh, And then it also sort of plays this arbitrage by being the most tolerant liberal place in the Middle East. If you go to Dubai, you talk to folks there and they're all very proud not to be like Saudi Arabia, et cetera, um, because people tend to lump the Middle East together. And so they're like, hey, yes, women can go out in like Western clothes. We're much more open. Um, and so it has this, this degree of, of, of tolerance that has, I think, attracted a, lot of, attracted a lot of talent, particularly from multinationals in the region, to make it a, a, the, the success that it currently is. So when you um, talk to folks like, uh, like Patrick Friedman, who you just had on your podcast, who you know, also is sort of a macro thinker uh, and sort of you know, curator and, and, and mover in the space, when you talk to other people like that, where do you tend to have differences of, of opinion or perspective about how, how this how this works or how this should be done? Sure. So I think, I mean, Patry and I, out of like 10 things, we probably agree on nine of them. Our disagreements, I think, like in the broad scope of things are relatively um, minor. I would say, um, obviously, I am running a nonprofit, a 501c3. He is running a, a venture fund. So I think we have somewhat different, uh, I guess, decisions. Part of the thing is I started mine earlier when I started there wasn't enough deal flow to sustain a venture fund now there is um, uh, but I, I do think that actually the, the nonprofit model is a little bit of a better way to go at this stage so we have I think a slight disagreement in that um, I tend to emphasize I think the importance of working with the international development community a little bit more than he does he obviously with his background in technology has a little bit more of a focus on the tech community I think the international development community has a lot of resources, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of talent, as well as tend to tends to have a heavy influence defining what the scope of acceptable reforms are in certain countries. So my belief is that, right, if you can get the international development community on board, that can allow you to sort of scale up your impact much quicker than if they are not on board.
for, right? Just like the U.S., where a lot of the right economists tend to have a heavy influence on uh, policy in the U.S. Similarly, in emerging markets, the uh, the, the, the economists who typically are embodied in um, international development organizations like the World Bank tend to have a relatively heavy influence on policy. Um, other, I guess, I don't know, disagreements. Um, I think with regards to um, seasteading, he tends to place a, um, not, this isn't just regards to seasteading, I think he places a slightly higher emphasis on the competitive governance aspect of charter cities than kind of the founding effect, the constitutional moment. So, right, you can think of charter cities as being good for multiple reasons. One reason is competition, right? If you've got competition between different parties, typically there will be better outcomes. If you have different cities competing for residents, competing for businesses, they will be innovative, they will create new ideas, and they will be able to attract the businesses because of that. Alternatively, it can be this kind of founding effect where if you have somebody who starts something and puts in a lot of good procedures, et cetera, in place, you can have these um, good outcomes that sustain themselves over a relatively long period of time. So if we look at competition between jurisdictions, that I think was particularly important in kind of the late Middle Ages in the early modern period in Europe. It helped create sort of the first iterations of modern government. It helped create sort of the first iterations of what we now think of as democracy. And that was, I think, quite important for creating these modern institutional structures that are key, were key for the Industrial Revolution, were key to getting to modernity. Um, on the other hand, if we look at the U.S., the U.S. is not great because of competition, right? The U.S. hasn't really had meaningful competition for about 200 years um, since the, the U.K. invaded us in the War of 1812. Uh, we are like surrounded on giant oceans but on two sides. So it's basically impossible to actually invade our landmass. Um, both of our neighbors to the north and to the south are relatively weak. Uh, Canada has a population that's about one-tenth of ours and is in a geographic region that would make it relatively easy to subdivide if we really wanted to. Um, it would be very difficult for them to keep their supply chains open. Um, Mexico has a much larger population, but their region is quite mountainous. It's not as productive. Um, uh, they, they, they have never really matched come close to matching the industrial capacity of America. So when we went to war with them and sort of took, all right, like, I mean, Texas took itself separately, but then we took New Mexico, Arizona, California, there was never really any doubt that that would, that would be the outcome. So America has been um, kind of like grown and been successful, not because of competition per se, not because there were these competitive pressures, but because it kind of got the constitutional moment right. Um, basically, right, the British people, because of their unique culture and their unique, uh, I don't know, expertise and understanding in kind of the 17, like, I don't know, 17 from 1600 to like seven or like 1700 to like 1800, like the British people were, were I don't know, quite good at creating new institutions, building new things. Um, if we, I mean, the, the sort of long-term outcomes of Canada, of New Zealand, of Australia have been, have been relatively similar. Australia was literally a prison colony, right? They weren't sending the best and brightest to Australia. They were sending prisoners. But because um, of that kind of unique mix of that, that, that British culture at that point, they were able to become a, a high-income country. And, and so that was not due to competition by any means. That was just due to this right, like right mix of founding stuff that led to these good outcomes. And when we think about charter cities, I think I tend to place a slightly higher emphasis on getting that initial right mix correct. And with charter cities, I don't mean right like culture per se, because uh, you have to draw from the surrounding region. You want to try to 
uh, attract the sort of ambitious, the smart people and try to get a, a culture started in, in the charter city that is good, but you're obviously constrained by the existing culture in the surrounding region. But the culture isn't, right, the culture I think plays an important role, but what also plays an important role is getting the governance structure right, like the formal governance structure who has decision-making rights, how do they work, right, what are the core companies to start. Uh, if you get these things right at the beginning, then um, I think that can create a powerful feedback cycle. I think competition between in governance is going to be important, but probably not for 20 or 30 years, right? Um, right now, there aren't enough charter cities for there to be any meaningful competition between them. So we need to wait until there are actually um, multiple cities that actually start competing with each other for residents and businesses for that dynamic to, to take effect and have an impact. Talk more about getting the perfect uh, mix, mix right, maybe some some nuances of what what that looks like, or what it looks like when you when you don't get it right, or some things that people get wrong when doing it, or should be thinking more about. Sure. So, um, all right, this is a, a I think a very big question, and it's 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 kind of key. Um, and so, what I would say is right there. There's multiple I think things that go in. One is obviously if you're building a city, you need land acquisition. Land acquisition can be quite difficult, especially in countries that don't aren't um, well titled, where there might be a sort of indigenous land ownership system, where maybe legally the chief is recognized as the owner of the land, but there might be all of these kind of right like he has ownership, but then this guy can grow plots on it for half the year. This other guy can grow on it for half the other half of the year, and so actually acquiring that land becomes extremely difficult. And one of the things you definitely don't want to do with a charter city is just take the land, right? A lot of, you can probably do that in some instances. Um, and you can probably, probably would not be too hard to actually get government support for taking the land because governments tend to do that all the time. Um, but that would be a, 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 a major mistake because then you basically create a population of people who you have treated unjustly, who are going to be able to rightly protest you and um, cause social disorder for the next 50 years or 100 years. And you need to have a long time horizon when thinking about uh, charter cities. So, okay, you have the land. The next thing that I think you need to do is engagement with the government. And so you can't build a charter city by saying, haha, your government is bad, we can do it better. No, you have to work with them within the existing political structure to figure out how to make the governance of the charter city as good as you reasonably can. Maybe that is working within an existing special economic zone regime. Uh, Nigeria, for example, has an existing special economic zone regime that is relatively extensive that can get and it's not going to get you like fully to charter city status, but can get you a substantial way there. Honduras has charter cities legislation, which basically allows for the, the devolvement of a huge amount of authority. Uh, most countries don't. Um, and so you might want to go through the political process to propose to the government, here is some legislation, right? Like, can you devolve this authority? Or you might just start building and hope that over time you can convince them to uh, devolve additional authority. But it is key, right? The government are your partners. You want to work with them at every level. Depending on the structure of your project, you might want to give them an equity or right, guarantee some sort of future tax revenue. Because uh, if the government doesn't like the project, it's not going to exist. And so you need to make sure you work closely with government. I would say maybe another thing to consider about this is working with like the local community. Obviously, you want to make sure you acquire the land justly. We also want to make sure that the local community, um, people who might not be on the land directly, but might be close to the land, um, feel included in, in the project, have a potential uh, upside that they can gain from the project, right? Like this is charter cities. They need to, they're a business venture. They need to be able to make money, but they are also a political venture. And you need to make sure that you engage all the stakeholders very carefully 
um, and, and, and keep them happy. We actually recently published a uh, risk mitigation guide that you can find on our website, uh, chartercitiesinstitute.org, that goes into some of these um, sort of practices and procedures a little bit more thoroughly. I want to transition a little bit to the Silicon Valley and, and what Silicon Valley understands uh, and also doesn't understand or fully appreciate about charter cities in your perspective. And, and then I want to segue into Mark Andreessen's It's Time to Build piece, because I know you thought a lot about that, your piece called Build Institutions, Not Apps, and how that sort of segues with sort of the cultural you know, uh, argument that Peter Thiel, Tyler Cowen, and um, others have. I think what Silicon Valley gets about building charter cities is Silicon Valley loves big ideas, right? They, they love to have an impact. And so they tend to evaluate ideas by the degree of impact. And they're also not scared of new things. A lot of traditional investors or just traditional people are scared of new things. So I live in Washington, D.C., and people have no idea what I'm doing. I, I kind of avoid describing it at parties because it, it, it ends up sort of being a long tangent or they, like, there's, there's kind of a blank face. So my, my go-to line is just like, I work at a small nonprofit that works in international development. But Silicon Valley, there is this general interest in, in big ideas and in how to execute on them, combined with the fact that there is, a, there is not a lot of credentialism. So if you go there and you're smart and you have a good idea and you have a reasonably concrete plan for um, how to achieve it, you will get engagement with a uh, caliber, of, caliber of people that you will never get in another city. People are willing to take you seriously um, just with the ideas and with your perceived competence and ability to execute. Uh, and then two, uh, there has been the strain, the techno-libertarian strain with people like Patrick Friedman who have, I believe, uh, had this particular focus on um, governance. And you also have a lot of folks who are quite interested in cities. Why Combinator had a cities program a few years ago. You have Sidewalk Labs with Google. A lot of um, founders are talking about building cities, right? Cities are, are, are hot right now. Uh, what do they not understand about cities, uh, uh, particularly charter cities? I think uh, several things. So one, politics. I think Silicon Valley is quite bad at politics. There was Apple, for example, they're saying they're going to invest $2.5 billion in affordable housing. Um, like Mark Zuckerberg is spending $500 million on affordable housing. It's like, okay, like, right, that will help. But the other thing you could do is just like legalize housing and that will help a lot more. And the fact that they're willing to spend like $2.5 billion instead of um, just developing an effective lobbying campaign or just buying off the homeowners to like legalize housing suggests a, a lack of understanding of, of politics. I mean, $2.5 billion is probably more than it's going to be spent on this presidential election. Uh, and right, they don't, I think politics has been troubling for Silicon Valley. And if you go to emerging markets, right, like politics is even much, much more confusing than it is in the U.S. Um, I think the second thing that Silicon Valley uh, can struggle with is um, the time horizons of charter cities, right? Uh, most um, venture funds typically have right, a, a sort of five-year investment period and then typically a five-year, five to seven-year return period. Um, while cities, right, maybe 10 to 15-year return period, but they're not really fully mature for like 30 40 years. So there's just a very different time horizon. Additionally, Silicon Valley tends to focus on uh, technology, particularly uh, information technology, where the startup costs are basically zero. So you can create an app with just a handful of people coding for a few months, while building a city requires a lot of upfront capital investment and um, a lot of sort of due diligence and planning that does not go into uh, uh, creating a, a, a software technology company. In Silicon Valley, you have people like Elon Musk who aren't starting to move into hardware. Elon Musk has more than moved. He, he's, he's sort of done a lot. You have some like nuclear fission companies that, that are kind of emerging and starting to get some things going. So I think Silicon Valley is thinking more about the physical world, but it's still heavily in the um, 
um, sort of digital world at this point, which um, doesn't translate. Uh, uh, yeah, another thing is, right, the typical um, software technology model is basically a zero marginal cost per additional user. Well, real estate has a, right, like fixed X amount in, Y amount out. These are your margins. I actually think cities are somewhat analogous to the Silicon Valley, the, the startup model. If you think about uh, the zero marginal cost model, if you think about New York City, adding one more person to New York City effectively has a zero marginal cost, right? There is some private cost. That person will have to get an apartment. Maybe that apartment will have to be built. That's not a cost to New York City itself. So long as it's not at carrying capacity, right? One more person on the sidewalk, one more person on the metro doesn't actually change the function of any of those things. Um, obviously, right, there is a, a sort of, a, 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 a amount of people where if you hit that amount, then you start seeing all of these, um, all of these costs in terms of the sidewalks are too crowded, the subway is too crowded. But until you hit that, right, like the marginal cost of an additional person is, is, is very low. And so because of that, there is something of an analogy. If you do a city, a city where you're just building out the, the infrastructure and not doing all of the individual apartment buildings, that is, I think, somewhat analogous to, um, uh, Silicon Valley. And, and what I have, I think, experienced is just that uh, talking with people, the, the Silicon Valley mindset doesn't always, I think, translate fully. For example, when applying to a well-known accelerator and telling people that we would um, write, had a sort of relationship where we were probably going to write the laws and regulations for a city of 1.5 million people, they were like, okay, so you're doing consulting. And it's like, yeah, I guess you can call it consulting, but right. I mean, you could also call the, the Federalist Papers PR, right? Like these have a big impact. If we do this, then we might be able to write the laws for a dozen cities with 1.5 million people, right? Maybe that's consulting, but like, think that has a relatively big impact. I mean, similarly, we have sort of people who frequently say, all right, you're a nonprofit. If this is a good idea, like how do you make money? And I typically think of what we're doing as kind of initial R&D into charter cities, where it's relatively difficult to monetize. So at some point you will be able to monetize it. But there are, I think, a a set of of, um, some sort of, uh, I guess, biases from experience, which everybody has, which which sometimes play into um, how charter cities are, are perceived in Silicon Valley. You had a post the other day, decline is a choice. Uh, so maybe, where, where do you stand on the cultural, are you, are you, do you pretty much agree with Tyler Cowen and the complacent class and Peter Thiel and his sort of cultural critiques or uh, how, do you, how do you think about? Yeah, so I, I, I'm pretty sympathetic. I mean, I went to graduate school at George Mason. Uh, Tyler Cowen was on my dissertation committee. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm quite influenced by these uh, ideas. And so if we look back at, I, I mean, Mark Anderson, he had the It's Time to Build essay. Going back before that, you had Peter Thiel talking about that. Peter Thiel wasn't really even the first, but he's sort of became the most prominent. I think Tyler Cowen hit mainstream with the the um, first, the Great Stagnation, and then the Complacent Class. Um, and so, yeah, I think we are seeing that. If we think about our, um, like, our, our I, I mean, government is part of it, but it's not only government. I think the private institutions are also largely failing. But if you think about it, basically, nobody... Uh, with the exception of, I think, Silicon Valley, there aren't really true entrepreneurs in the U.S. anymore. And what I mean by this is, like, what, what is a true entrepreneur? Somebody who kind of, like, has an idea, 
and it's not really fully formed and just kind of has to build it from scratch and figure it out with a lot of like different things happening. And so if we think about banking, the banking industry, for example, right, most of the major banks in the U.S. were established decades ago. Um, my guess is that any of the newer banks, with the exception of the new banks coming out of Silicon Valley to compete, any of the other banks uh, in the in the U.S. were probably founded by people who cut their teeth at the big banks like Bank of America, became a vice president or something, and then figured, let me start a new bank. So while it might be a new technically a new bank, it is effectively uh, a sort of right, just a spinoff of a legacy institution. And so what this means is that for most institutions in the US, you can think about government institutions, nobody currently working in the government institutions, um, very few of them were alive when they got set up, right? Most of the governing institutions in the US um, got set up kind of in the progressive era or in the immediate post-war era. So you had a lot in the sort of 1910s, 1920s, you had some in the 1930s and then 19, like late 19. 40s, 1950s, um, you saw them all get set up. But that class of people that built all of those institutions is no longer with us. So the entire administrative class effectively graduated into these existing institutions and was uh, charged with maintenance. But what they're doing, the analogy is, right, they're not building the, I don't know, temple or whatever the analogy is. They're not building the machine. They're instead just polishing it, shining it. When some, when some it stops working, they figure out how to make it work again. But they don't have, I think, this like, holistic view, this understanding of what it means to work. So for example, when I, I, I sort of speak with people with this mindset, it's like, okay, so here's this problem. Like, how do you fix this problem? And they'll say, it's not my responsibility. That That's Jack's responsibility or something like he's the expert on this. So these people have effectively been conditioned to have a relatively narrow expertise. This is what I understand. This is what I make decisions on. There are experts for every other field. Um, and so if something happens, I just call those experts. And so our like senior administrative class in the US tends to be staffed by our like Ivy League graduates. What they do is they go to college, they might do some management consulting, they might do some finance, maybe they go back to get a law degree, maybe they work in a like senator's office or a representative's office, etc. But they never actually experience the real potential of downside, right? They never actually see these decisions where there are these like big outcomes for the decisions. They they have a relatively kind of pampered life through um, everything. And because of that, I think when they are faced with these large external shocks like the coronavirus, they just have no idea how to react, right? They're, they're built, they built an operating model that was built by people two generations before them. And all they've been doing is maintaining this operating model, um, but they don't understand even why the operating model exists or how to react to to kind of new circumstances. And I see Silicon Valley as somewhat different just because if you want to build a company, right, you are responsible for it. You are the ultimate person being responsible for the decision makers, right? When you're a startup with five people, there is no finance department to go ask, like, how does this accounting work? You have to figure it out yourself. Um, and that inculcates a different mindset, or at least I think we saw with COVID, right? Like with the Recode article that was making fun of Silicon Valley for asking for handshakes, uh, they understood, um, Silicon Valley understood uh, exponentials. They were able to think for themselves to not pay attention to the dominant media narrative. And a lot of them are also watching China relatively closely because China has a relatively active tech scene. Well, for example, the, the, the healthcare establishment in the US wasn't paying attention. The journalism establishment wasn't paying attention. The government wasn't paying attention. And even now, um, I mean, you still can't get N95 masks in the US, which is just a monumental like governing failure that we, this is, this is, four months into a deadly pandemic and we can't get like technology that is 
relatively simple available four years ago because uh, like why? I mean, I don't even know why. I assume there's some stupid regulatory barrier. These aren't expensive to produce. Um, I had to get my friend who was like overseas to ship me some because I can't buy them on Amazon. Uh, the, the U.S. military, when people transfer to a different location after spend two weeks in quarantine, um, instead of just doing tests, right? Like testing is an available technology. Why can't you test? And so there is this, um, I think, broader cultural complacency that is to a certain extent because of and to a certain extent compounded by this lack of technological innovation with the exception of um, information technology, which is kind of the only uh, place where we have seen like, meaningful innovation. I, I hope this will change, right? There is some optimism about I'm not sure space travel will change it. That's not really going to be profitable for at least a few generations. But in, in biotech, um, in, 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 in transportation, in energy, there is the possibility for relatively substantive uh, transformations in the next 20, 30 years. So hopefully that can, the technology can help sort of push us out of our, our complacency. But um, I'm, I'm pretty worried about the, I don't know, health and direction of, of our country right now. What's interesting, because Zehan basically thinks that we will be fine even in spite of ourselves. No matter how bad things get here, you become a communist country, you've got, who knows what could happen in the next 20 years, that our geography, demographics, and energy situation just put us in such a good position. Yeah, well, I, th- I think I, I would be, I, I would be um, careful to, uh, I guess, say, like, compared to what? Um, I think Zehan is right that we are in a very good position compared to other countries. The demographic situation as well as the like technology situation in Europe is much, much worse. The governance situation, I think, is a little bit better. The demographics in China, I think, are much, much worse, as well as the, the geography in China is much, much worse. U.S. has much better geography and um, demographics than most of the other kind of, quote unquote, competing powers, which is why I would be optimistic about us compared to those competing powers. But if we think about, right, the U.S. as what we could be, or the U.S., um, what it will be in 20 years compared to current expectations, I think it's going to be substantially worse. The U.S. over the next 10 years compared to current expectations, I think is going to be substantially worse. The right, We've seen a lot of social unrest protests related to um, police brutality. Most of those, uh, there, there, there hasn't been sufficient impetus for reform, in my opinion. Um, we've seen Colorado ban qualified immunity, but it does not look like we are going to get a ban of qualified immunity at the national level. Um, the police unions still appear to be very strong, and it does not look like there is enough impetus to uh, change police unions. So we're basically seeing, I think, a lot of um, performative kind of actions. Uh, right? There is a tweet going around where it's uh, like, we wanted to like end sort of police brutality, and instead you want to uh like change the voice actors on these cartoons or ban this cartoon dog and it's like okay look right for cultural sensitivity issues maybe those are good things but it's kind of missing the the plot of let's actually focus on these real substantive changes that can reduce the the sort of real wrongs that are currently occurring in our society and just because those those institutions are so entrenched and because they are still supported by some of them are still supported by like um, um, sort of wide classes of our society. Like I think middle, middle America and suburbia still hasn't fully realized the extent of some of the, the police abuses, but they're coming around to it. Um, but then there's also just these very powerful institutional structures where we're seeing the police unions effectively control the mayors um, uh, and the mayors are too afraid to do anything. So unless there is a brave mayor that basically calls in the, disbands the police, calls in the national guard for a few weeks until reconstituting the police force and 
and shows that that is an effective model, we're probably going to see the continuation of existing police practices in most major cities over the next 10 years. And what that will mean is that we'll probably have some mass social unrest for, I don't know, probably three to four more times over the next 10 years during the summer. It's always during the summer that it happens um, just because like we're, we're not fixing the problems, the underlying um, um, dysfunction and, and decay is there. And so until there is that, that fix, it, it, we're going to continue to see this, 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 this frustration with the system. Do you think uh, he underestimates China or, or, or gets China wrong? Zan? I think he definitely underestimates it because his prediction is that there is a non-trivial possibility of major famine in the next like one or two generations, which is an extremely pessimistic uh, prediction. I think he underestimates the importance of, I guess, momentum, the importance of technology. I think this was a recent um, Tim um, Cook quote where he said, like, in the U.S. to fill a room of, it's very hard to fill, like, a conference room of machine engineers. In China, you can fill a stadium, right? They have at least a sort of productive organization and like the organization of their society in terms of being able to accomplish specific outcomes is much better, um, right? They were able to respond much more effectively to the coronavirus, obviously accepting that if they had a more free flow of information, they might've been able to clamp it up before anything happened. But even if we are assuming that their total death rate is drastically understated, which it probably is, um, it's, they their, their response still appears to be better than, than, than the U.S.'s. Um, additionally, they have, right, I don't know, a, what might be called a productive base that is, I think, a little bit more solid than America's just in terms of like manufacturing. Uh, I, I think he is right in the sense that, right, they are food, a net importer of food as well as a net importer of energy. And those do pose large risks, particularly as America withdraws from its role as uh, a global power. So I, I would describe myself as in broad alignment for his thesis. I think everybody is currently overestimating China. At the same time, I think he is particularly pessimistic on China. And I'm not sure I'm as pessimistic as he is. Yeah. I want to segue into Balaji Srinivasan's uh, sort of ideas around charter cities but also, you know, taken inspired by the sovereign individual and that, that sort of school thought more broadly. I think two striking ones for me are one that um, biology often says that they're going to start on the Internet first um, and maybe even using, you know, VR and other sort of technology and, and then uh, sort of cloud cities and then, you know, form in person. If here's your thoughts there. And then also that maybe they should, these should be structured as like corporations, um, the sort of patchwork idea and maybe, you know, exit is much more important than voice. Without exit, voice doesn't really matter. But if you have exit, then voice does matter. But then also, yeah, maybe it's new, maybe it's just structured as corporations. Maybe it's actual, you know, corporations like Amazon, et cetera, just get so enormous. How do you sort of react to some of these ideas? Sure. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit, I, get, I think, I, I, if you think about a city, the hardest part of building a city is getting people to live there. And so if we look at history, there's been a handful of ways that that's happened. One is basically there's a, a, a natural, like economically advantageous location, which might be a port. Um, it might be a trading route. It might be a mine. So because of this economically advantageous location, people move there. Enough people move there, right? It becomes um, self-sustaining without the advantageous location itself, right? San Francisco, even if you block the port, people would still live there because you have all the, these built-in agglomeration effects. But that is what's necessary to get that engine kind of going. The, the second way you could do it is just, right, if you're a government, you don't have budget constraints, so you can just force people to live there, typically bureaucrats. You just say, this is the new seat of government. If you're a bureaucrat and you want to be promoted, you have to live there. So that's a city like Brasilia, a city like Abuja, a city like um, Astana in Kazakhstan. 
The third way to do it is, right, you have a ideology. This ideology is often religion. Um, so if we think of Salt Lake City, right, that was kind of founded by by the Mormons, um, partially because they were persecuted, so they need somewhere new to go. But it was that motivating that that, that that Mormonism that allowed them to coordinate to move all to this place effectively. We also saw that with Israel, where um, a lot of Jews, particularly in Eastern Europe, kind of saw the writing on the wall, saw that, hey, this is not a safe place for us. It's not a friendly place and moved en masse to what was then Palestine and is now Israel to sort of create this this new um uh, and so seasteading to a certain extent, I think, tried this with their animating ideology being libertarianism. Um, but I think that that can be particularly difficult. Uh, it, it has to be a really powerful animating ideology, a really powerful tie that, that can socially bind people to get them to all move to a new place. Um, and so my interpretation of Balaji is it's basically an intentional community where the community itself is formed online. And then once the community itself is formed online, then there can be a coordination thing where, all right, like you say, once we get a million people, everybody moves to this place. We can like have a leader who negotiates with the government to ask for a degree of concessions, who can help acquire the land, et cetera. I'm a little bit, I think, skeptical of this. I think it will be challenging to coordinate, right? Like if you say we're all going to move when we hit a million people, like, okay, what, 5% of the people are going to move? Second, just if you think about, like, uh, cities, I, 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 you need the demographics to go with them. And currently, most, like, no high-income countries really have the demographics. I mean, the only Western democracy that is actually above replacement-level births um, is Israel. And that's, like, not really a Western democracy. It, 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 it doesn't, falls into its own, like, kind of unique category. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I think, a little bit, a little bit, uh, I guess, skeptical that, these online communities can sufficiently coalesce to encourage mass migration, especially in if they are moving from high-income countries where there's already built-out infrastructure, so they don't need to spend on the infrastructure costs uh, to allow them to move in mass. And you asked several other questions in that sort of large question set, but that's the one I remembered and answered. The, the, the one about uh, should they be structured as corporations? And you know, will existing corporations try to create cities and should governments be? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think corporations are a natural way to, to structure city development projects. Um, if you're spending a lot of money on infrastructure, yes, you're going to need some way to return profit to the investors. Uh, and the corporate legal entity tends to be the best way to do that. Uh, that being said, in general, I think you probably want to have a transition period. People do expect right, some voice in government that will come with a degree of legitimacy. And so I think a corporate governance structure, at least if we assume current um, thinking, it, it, it will be the thinking in the future. A, a, a um, corporate governance structure is probably unsustainable in a lot of societies around the world over the long time horizon. So the way we're thinking about this at the Charter Cities Institute is, right, if a corporation comes and builds up the infrastructure for the city, then um, the city government, they will have influence on the city government for a set period of time after which it will transition to a more democratic uh, structure. And so we're kind of building this off of, um, um, it's called a build-operate-transfer model. It's kind of a typical model for infrastructure provision, both in emerging markets as well as high-income countries, where a private operator will build infrastructure, will have basically use rights over that infrastructure for a set period of time, after which it will transfer to the host country. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're kind of exploring with how this can be implemented on a, uh, 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 a city scale. 
as to whether we will see existing corporations try to build a city. I mean, we already are, right? Google with Sidewalk Labs uh, try to do it. They recently were unsuccessful in Toronto, but I think they're looking for new locations. I don't think um, most of the new city developments will be built by existing um, corporations, right? Um, it, it, corporations tend to have a culture and an identity that makes it somewhat difficult to break off and do new things. Um, Google is very good at the internet. Um, there also are, seem to be okay at doing some of the moonshot projects, but most of their moonshot projects that seem to be making the most progress, uh, for example, self-driving cars. And I think, um, what's his face is like Larry pages, uh, flying plane startup seems to be going well, but the, 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 those, those, those projects and those investments tend to be very, um, focused on technology. So, right. Like if you look at a lot of the failures of, of, or maybe not failures is too strong, but sort of the, the, the slow success in Toronto with sidewalk labs, that was a lot being politics related. And so I would not expect, I would expect a lot of the technology companies to face similar um, politics related challenges were they to try to uh, develop a city. That being said, so um, Jamshedpur in India was originally built by the Tata Group around a steel foundry. So it is possible for cities to be built by uh, private corporate actors that are a little bit outside the the scope of their kind of, I don't know, expertise in corporate missions. But I suspect most of the new cities that are developed over the next 30 or so years are going to be developed by um, new legal entities uh, with people with a variety of experiences, but heavily in real estate, in um, sort of asset management uh what's the word like private equity and emerging markets um um maybe some management consultant experience but kind of those those like broad skill set but very project management oriented with hard fiscal assets but, but another part of the sovereign individual thesis more broadly is that uh corporations will become less tied to sort of their home country and become even more you know global and multinational and thus sort of have more freedom there and less sort of uh, commitment to any one country. Do you, does that seem evident to you, DBD? That's definitely true on some margins. I mean, we're seeing Apple and um, Google both developed a contact tracing app and the EU was like, we're going to do it ourselves and develop our own contact tracing app. But obviously Apple and Google's was a thousand times better. So you're basically seeing some multinationals effectively dictate policy. Uh, At the same time, India just banned a list of, I think it was 60 Chinese apps, including TikTok, uh, based on the recent, uh, for lack of a better way to phrase it, kerfluffle in the Himalayas, where I think uh, 60 people ended up dead. Um, they were beating each other with clubs. It uh, sounded actually pretty horrific. Um, and so there is this rising geopolitical tension. You're seeing this with the U.S., where the U.S. is pressuring our allies not to accept um, Huawei investments for the creation of 5G networks for fear that those networks um, will be used to basically feed information to the Chinese and so we are seeing right, the EU, there are, this was going around Twitter the other day, there are papers um, that are proposing basically creating a Chinese-style internet and they actually use that language, like a Chinese-style internet. They're trying to create their own firewalls. I'm not sure how, like, what halls of power those that language is being traveled in, but it's sort of inefficient EU documents, which is, to me, worrying to say the least. So I actually expect over the the... Right, you've got these two trends that a lot of governments, particularly decaying governments, don't have as much capacity as they used to. Um, I think the government in like 1950 would have be much more effective at creating a contact tracing app. There was just a lot more, I don't know, vigor in the government, a lot more capacity. And now that, that kind of vigor, that capacity has, has, has died out. Um, and so corporations are stepping in because they still have that rapid feedback loop. The corporations tend to be a little bit more um, organizationally effective. They're, they're, they're subject to more competitive pressures. 
at the same time, right, there is this increasing global geopolitical um, competition. And I think that is uh, leading to countries taking a more aggressive stance against uh, multinationals from other locations, building products there, investing there, et cetera. Because if you're worried that, right, like China is going to try to exert leverage on you, like you are, if you're Indian, you're worried about that, then you are probably going to decrease the amount of leverage that they will be able to exert on you. Um, and I, I suspect that we will see a I guess, I don't know, right, increased partition of where multinational corporations actually operate. Yeah. In, in, in closing here, why don't you just give a little bit of a preview for what to, uh, what, what is like some of the major forks in the road upcoming or, or what is sort of the, what has to happen in the next few years or what, what, what could happen? Where, where do you see this going? Sure. So um, I, I, I think we're basically on the verge of a charter cities moment. Um, I am, was a little bit surprised that so much has happened over the last I guess, month or so. But as people are starting to think about a, a kind of living with COVID and potentially a post-COVID world, the amount of interest in charter cities has, has really gone through the roof. We've got a lot of good projects reaching out to us. We've got some projects we're working with where we think we will make substantial um, progress that will be publicly shared in the next six months to the next year um, in terms of creating new legal frameworks. We're in early discussions with partnering with universities to begin developing programs um, to basically train the senior set of uh, charter city administrators, right? One of the challenges who actually like is the administers these charter cities, that talent does not exist. So we have to figure out training mechanisms for them. So in five years, I think our goal is we want to be working with 24 different charter cities projects with probably, I don't know, low hundreds of thousands of residents actually living in them. Um, But with a projected population of all of those city projects to have, I don't know, about 10 million people, I think what we will see is the next like two to three years, we will see a relatively wide variety of models emerge um, with regards to charter cities. Some of them will be successful. Some of them won't be successful. After three to four years, we will see a, I think, um, I don't know, concentration of models where the models that are successful will be replicated. The models that aren't successful will kind of die out and people will stop paying attention to them. Um, I think we will see the engagement of much more mainstream actors in charter cities. Uh, organizations like the World Bank, like the African Development Bank, like the UN will start including charter cities in their language. We'll start like offering technical expertise. We'll start uh, discussing charter cities. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very bullish on charter cities, perhaps more bullish than I have uh, been in a long time. That's a, that's a perfect place to wrap. And for people who want to learn more, uh, where, where, where you point them? Sure. So our website is chartercitiesinstitute.org. You can sign up for our newsletter there. We have a podcast, the Charter Cities Podcast. Um, on Twitter, we are cci.city. Um, on Twitter, I am um, uh, Mark Lutter. Uh, we also have a Facebook. We have a LinkedIn. So yeah, follow us, stay up to date. We'd love to sort of involve you in the conversation. My guest today has been Mark Lutter of Charter Cities Institute. Mark, thank you for coming on the program. Uh, thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.